So like I, I used the example of Thrive Market earlier in this podcast, such a great example here that shoppers or even Instacart, right? Like ordering online, still doing delivery or curbside pickup. Those platforms that allowed the shopper to build an entire basket of groceries and check out in one click, right? Those were the ones that were really, really sustainable. And the the takeaway here is realizing that that's still wholesale. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it as better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. Visit community.evolvecpg.com to join. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On today's episode, we're speaking with Ali Ball, founder and CEO of Food Biz Wiz, about the role of a grocery store buyer and how to get your product on more shelves. Hi, I'm Allie. I'm a former grocery buyer turned wholesale consultant who lives in San Francisco. I help food and beverage brands understand how to succeed on the retail shelf and how to have high sales once they do through our online program, Retail Ready. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. I'm excited to have you, Allie. I've been following some of your content and classes and seeing your ads pop up in my feed all the time. So I've just been anxious to, to chat with you and um, swap notes and see how, you know, we can help move this industry forward together. So yeah, happy to have you on the show to get to know you a little bit more. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Yeah. So one of the things when looking into your background, and I know that as you mentioned, you're a kind of consultant for brands trying to get into retail. Obviously, you used to work in retail, which is a great asset to to help guide brands. But specifically, you worked at Byright, which is a pretty famous store. And I've actually met Sam at a book signing oh, <laughs> when I bought cool. the book. And it's just such a great book on like helping you understand how to even pick out food, you know, not just yes. recipes. So oh my God, fun a, fact, I visited the store. Yeah, fun fact is uh, that I'm in that book. I wrote the yeah. intro to the dairy chapter. So That's awesome. if you still have it, you can go back and flip through and you'll see my like young face in my Byright uniform kicking off that chapter. That's amazing. Yeah, it's such a good book too because it's so informative. But with that said, it's just such a unique culture for a store, such an awesome store. And whenever I'm in San Fran, I always try to just pop in there and see what's hot and fresh because the the product selection y'all had on the shelves was always really interesting as well. Oh, for sure. And I feel like I really came in at the glory days of Byright. It was back when I started when it was just a single location. And you know, by the time I left, we had you know massively expanded. When I came in, I was employee number 68. And by the time we by the time I left, we had over 350 employees. Oh, so I yes. just saw this this crazy growth at Byright. And and like you said, I think it was really a result of of having such an excellent and such a cutting edge product assortment, especially back in, you know, 2007, 2008, 2009, when when specialty food was harder to come by. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, being somewhat like chef led, I guess, like having the Food sure. prep, that, like food that you could come and buy that isn't just like, this isn't going to be great, but I'm in a pinch and I need some food. But it was like actually really amazing food. Totally. <laughs> and that was the that. whole concept of, of Byright. So Sam Moganum, the, the owner of Byright, his family opened it in 1940. And it was his dad and his uncle. And it was, you know, back then it was like a corner store, like literally in the Mission District in San Francisco, bars on the window, they sold like cigarettes and 40s. And like, it was like your average corner store. (laughs) And in 
And so Sam, one of the sons, there's two sons, Sam went to culinary school in Switzerland. He came back to San Francisco when he was in his early 20s. He actually started a restaurant downtown and his dad and uncle were ready to retire and they really wanted Sam to take over the market. And Sam, this was in 1998. And Sam was like, I will do it, but it has to be done my way. Like we're ripping the bars off the window. We are making it like a fresh produce and like, you know, locally sourced meat first. They built out, you've seen like that fantastic deli and really, really changed it from that typical everyday corner store to a destination market that was focused so much on, on chef inspired product. So yeah, it really was Sam's vision that, that, you know, crafted by right into what it is today. That's beautiful. And it's working, of course. Well, I, don't, working. I haven't been down there in a while of maybe expansions hurt. I, who knows? But it, it worked enough to make that expansion possible and get into all sorts of other things. So I've never worked in on the retail side. And I imagine, you know, that's a lot of the value you bring. But before we dive into some of that value, I'm just curious from like a day-to-day kind of like, what is that job like? Like, how do you make sure you're getting really interesting products and keeping them on shelf, especially when you work with like smaller producers that might be a little less consistent. Yeah, that's a great question. So in my role, so I, I, I played many different roles at Byright. I was an assistant grocery buyer, grocery buyer, head of grocery, retail store manager once we opened that, that second location. But in, let's talk about the grocery buying role because I think that's, that's really what people are most, most interested in. So in that role of grocery buyer, my role was to figure out products for our shelves and make sure that once we did put them on the shelf, they sold right? A grocery buyer's performance is measured on their sales results. So we, you know, I, and gosh, this was again, like 2007, 2008, 2009, I would literally go to like farmer's markets and read like cooking magazines and go to pop up like underground, you know, food events in San Francisco, scouring our markets for up and coming food producers. And, you know, this was before Instagram, it was before we could just like, you know, follow a hashtag and find products online. But really looking for products that were unique, products that had fantastic packaging, products that told some sort of brand story, and products at the end of the day that I thought were going to sell off of our shelves. So back then, it was a little bit of sleuthing, which was really, really fun. Certainly a lot of like inbound sales too. People often wanted, you know, Byright is a mecca for people. So people wanted that experience of being on the shelves at Byright. So I would get dozens of products pitched to me every week. And, you know, we almost had like our, we had our pick, right? Like we had overflowing samples (laughs) in back stock, like waiting to be tasted through. And it meant we really could select the best of the best for our shelves. Well, how how did you determine what is best of the best? Was it just yeah. like, I really like this product, so I'm yeah. hoping other people like it? Or was it more, you know what, I know our consumer and what they're going to buy. And, you know, this is a little bit too edgy for them, or this is a little bit too spicy for them, or this is, you know, yes. not something our customers are looking for because of our demographic. Yes. I'm so glad that you asked this question because this is, I mean, this is exactly what we talk about in Retail Ready. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that producers make is they think that their product is going to be appealing to that wholesale buyer because it's delicious or because it has that wonderful brand story or because it does have that great packaging. But in reality, that buyer is evaluating your product based on, again, whether or not it's going to help them hit their category goals. And so, yes, of course, 
a great story is compelling. Like, yes, of course, a delicious product is is important. But at, at this point, you know, in 2021, like, those are expected, right? All products, all specialty products, all products on the shelves at Byright have a story or, you know, 98% of them. So that's just the baseline now. And so, and so again, that that buyer, when they're evaluating the product, really thinks about, is this product the right fit for my store in particular and the type of people who are shopping? And so it doesn't mean that just because a grocery buyer says no to your product that you're not going to have success somewhere else. It just means that it wasn't the right fit for that particular store. I also think, let me add this on, that just because a buyer says no to your product doesn't mean that it's not the right fit for that store. What it really means is that you haven't done a a good enough job of convincing them that it is. And that's mm, really okay. where the secret is. Like that that's that's what I love teaching to emerging brands that how to speak that language of wholesale, how to convince the buyer to give you a shot on on their shelves, um, how to craft that like winning sales pitch that makes that buyer say yes. There's a, a very specific nice. way to do it. That's cool. And we'll share yeah. some links to your retail ready course and other things cool. in the episode show notes and, and talk about it a little bit more later. But for now, I'm also curious for on the retail buyer standpoint, yeah. when you're thinking about what your customers are going to buy, is it more based on like past data, like shopping mm. data, like what has sold in the past and what hasn't? Or is it more based on like some sort of research that you do with your customers to yeah. figure out what future trends might be like maybe that something hasn't sold yet but that's because you haven't had it yet right <laughs> right oh my gosh it's a little bit of both and let me say that some some buyers are more hesitant about changing up their product assortment than others right so like you know we are we are talking in in like blanket statements here but but do know that it of course it varies from buyer to buyer and location to location but i think the best the best approach is looking at both equally right looking at past sales data so you can you run your item movement reports this is typically what's called a category review so you are reviewing a particular category of your store you run your item movement reports for a particular sales period and you assess you know what's working What's not working? You look at your numbers at the bottom and you ask, why are they so low, right? It might be, gosh, this is the part that I really loved about, about my role. It might be that we merchandise that this, this brand on the bottom shelf and like, we're not ready to discontinue it. Like, let's move it up and make it eye level. Or maybe it was that that supplier had out of stocks for weeks on end. And so the sales numbers, the data is actually inaccurate because the numbers look really low, but it's because we literally didn't have the product to sell. So it's this really interesting exercise of looking at the data and extrapolating, you know, what what went on and what is what are we going to see in the future if we repeat these trends. So that's that's one side of it. Again, I that's the part that I really really liked thinking about those like yeah tiny tweaks that we could make on our shelves to increase sales and, and find success with that producer. And then the other side of it is looking at trend reports and data. So in specialty in particular, you can get stores can opt in to sharing their point of sale data with market research groups, right? Like Spins or Nielsen. 
And in turn, those companies take your data, you know, take data from all the stores who opt in, they sort it and, you know, sort it by category and make it clean and pretty. And then they share it back with those stores. And, and so it's a win, it's a win-win on the store level, because, you know, let's just say I am hesitant about selling CBD canned beverages, right? And I'm like, oh, not for me. <laughs> Our audience wouldn't like them. I can look at that data and say, okay, well, actually, at a store that is pretty similar to ours in Seattle or in Minneapolis or down the street in San Francisco, they're, they're seeing a lot of great sales results or like this category mm. is trending. Like why not, why not give it a shot on our shelves? Nice. Right. Okay. So cool. that's really important. And then of, of course that data can also be purchased by producers and that's really valuable because if that, if you do encounter I'm just going to run with a CBD beverage example. If you encounter a, a buyer who is hesitant, you can share that data and you can say like, actually, like, look at this. Like, I know you say you don't have a CBD category or like, I know you say your audience isn't interested, but what we're actually finding is that this category is increasing by, I'm making this up, uh, 32% year over year. Like you are missing out on sales if you don't bring in our product line. So yeah, I think it's that. Does that answer your question? That it's it's kind yeah, of absolutely. It's both. It's looking at historical data and also being open to looking at that the trend reports. And not yeah, every buyer cool. does that. I'll say I'll say that not every buyer is it does that multi pronged approach. But if I were still in the buying position, that's the type of action that I would would take before I were making purchasing choices. Nice. And you answered my follow-up question, which was, if data isn't performing, do you get a little creative or just take that product off the shelf? But like you mentioned that you might reposition it on the, like put it on a higher shelf or do something else different to give it a chance before you cut it. So yeah. that's cool. And it, I'll also say that it depends, right? And I'm going to give, I'm going to give a little bit of tough love here. But, you know, when I used to look at item movement reports, if we had two producers, two brands at the bottom, and they were pretty similar and they were performing, they were both underperforming. And I knew I wanted to, to get rid of one so that I could literally free up shelf space for a new brand, right? Like kind of like a one for one swap here. I would, gosh, okay, yeah. I, I would look at these two brands and say like, which one has been easier to work with? Which one supports their product on shelf? Which one has been that like low maintenance, easy going vendor for me? And nice. that makes you know, sense. I, I say it, I say that it's a little bit of tough love because it is, it's a little bit subjective, right? Like, how do you know if you're an annoying vendor, but, or a high maintenance vendor? We actually have a podcast episode coming out about, about this topic. Like, are you a high maintenance vendor? But it's nice. really this, the spoiler alert is that it's, if you require that retail location to do a lot of things for your product in order to like make it sell, whether that's putting Best Buy dates on, stickering with UPCs, maybe you're ordering and lead time is really extended and it's challenging to to keep in stock or, you know, any of these things. Yeah, lots of out of stock or yeah, exactly. supply chain I issues. Mean, there's yeah. lots and lots of things here. If that buyer has to make a choice between <laughs> cutting A or B, they're always going to discontinue that that frustrating vendor. Does that make sense? 
Oh, yeah, totally. Totally makes sense. I feel like that applies in all forms of, you know, professional life. <laughs> like yeah. if the easier you are to work with, the more likely people will continue to work with you. Yes. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. It's like, you know, if you're if you're a good person, people want to work with you. It's all yeah. relation nice. it's all relationship based makes in sense. retail. Okay. So you obviously got some great experience um from pre things like Instagram and all that and and, and uh eventually learned to use all the modern tools and whatever. But yeah at some point decided to leave retail and go into consulting. Yeah. So what what kind of inspired that shift? Yes. So as I mentioned, we opened a second location at Byright. It was Byright Divisadero. And it was about three miles across town, still still exists. This was in two, we opened Divis in early 2013. I became head of grocery and retail store manager of, of that store. And my focus shifted away from the producer and more towards our employees and the financials of the grocery department. So I was heads down, you know, looking at the PL every single week and analyzing the numbers and, and really thinking about basically like, are we profitable? Profit margins are, we all know this, like across the board in, in grocery, profit margins are slim. In retail, it's it's the same. Um, high revenue, very slim profit margins. And so my job was really focused on, on spreadsheets. And I found that I missed working with producers. I missed connecting with brands and supporting them on shelf. And, and that, I, I miss like having that impact. And certainly, it's impactful to have a profitable department and stay in business, right? Like that is that is important as well. But I really missed that connection with the producers. So after a while at Deviz, I decided that I was going to leave and start start my own consulting business that was focused on the idea of helping brands understand the behind the scenes of wholesale. At this point, I didn't know a single other grocery buyer that was willing to have you know, have these conversations with producers in a consulting capacity. Like certainly they, they were happening in, you know, at the store level and back rooms and, and things like that. But I didn't know any other consultants who were former grocery buyers. And and so I really identified this need in the marketplace. And I left Byright in 2014, so seven, seven years ago, and and started that consulting business. And when I when I left Byright, my consulting actually my time was split. So I spent half my time with producers, like I said. And for the first few years, I spent the other half of my time consulting with grocery stores across the United States. So I helped with buying and category reviews and training their inventory departments and really, really making sure that grocery departments were operationally nice. sound. There's lots of moving parts, you know, in, in grocery. And that experience was so valuable too, because People always say like, you know, you mentioned this, but like Byright's magical. Byright's this wonderful little bubble that we're in, in San Francisco. And it was really, really educational for me to have that, that similar experience, you know, with, with markets across the U.S. But after a while, I realized, you know, again, my passion was with the producers and why did I leave Byright if I'm just continuing to do category reviews <laughs> yeah, and merchandising and things like that? So I slowly phased out the retail clients. And, you know, now here we are uh, focusing 100% on on the, the brand side of things. Awesome. So did the consulting come first or did the podcast come first? Oh and then, gosh. of course, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Yeah. So, so the consulting came first. So I've been doing consulting for seven years now. And the podcast just hit its two-year birthday. Gosh, nice. Happy birthday. Month. 
Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I mean, you know, as a podcaster, it's it's a lot. We produce episodes. So it's the Food Biz Wiz podcast. It comes out every single Thursday. And literally for the past two years, I have launched a new episode every single week. And I think I'll share this. I, I think that's why it took me five years before I launched a podcast. Because <laughs> yeah. when I do something... I go all in, right? I was like, we need to do weekly episodes. Like I cannot, you know, it was all or nothing for me once I decided to launch Food Biz Wiz. And yeah, it's it's been such a fantastic way to connect with producers. So we've got three different styles of episodes there. We've got solo shows with me. We've got shows with service providers in the packaged products industry. So Amazon experts and PR firms and designers and you know any anyone who supplements what, what I can talk about. And then we've got episodes with Charlie, who is our VP of student success here at Food Biz Wiz. So yeah, Charlie is also a CPG founder. He founded Element Shrub about eight years ago. It's a concentrate and ready to drink beverage line. He's in Arlington, Virginia, and he is a retail ready alumnus, still runs Element Shrub. And about two years ago, he joined our team to support on that, that founder. Yeah, that founder perspective inside of retail ready. And the student becomes the teacher. I know, I know it comes full circle. And it, it's been really wonderful to, to grow our team over, over the past few years and, and really, again, like expand our impact in this industry. And, and now it really feels like with, with my buyer perspective and Charlie's founder perspective, we really, we really cover both sides of what producers need to, to be successful. That's very cool. I like it. So, and that's cool that you have the different types of episodes as well. It's maybe we're a newer podcast launched a handful of months ago, and I'm still trying to figure out how to structure it all, whether I should bring on a co-host or have different segments like so far we've mostly just done these kind of interview style and then i have this one other um style where we talk with uh, leadership coaches or leadership team or or individual kind of people who help um, teams make better decisions so they can make a bigger impact but so we'll have some shorter episodes with them where we talk about leadership skills but i've been trying to figure out like other formats that we could go and you and i briefly talked about episode length, like some people like longer episodes, some people like shorter. So I feel like we're still in that like experimental phase where we're trying to figure out exactly what to do, what people want, like what what's our unique voice and so on and so forth. So do you feel like by year two, you kind of have some of that figured out now or are you still in experimental you know, phase? <laughs> a little, yes and no, right? And I think one of the one of the things that I'm trying to embrace as a podcast host is realizing that it can evolve over time, right? Like just because I used to have episodes that were, I don't know, half hour or an hour or whatever, doesn't mean that I have to do that for the rest of our lives, for the rest of our like podcasting existence. We're actually just doing, we're just launching a series now that's a mini series and it's four episodes that it, that, you know, again, each week that's called the fourth quarter focus. And it's all about what emerging food, beverage, package producers can focus on in the fourth quarter to set up for success come January. So it's our very first time doing a mini series. And I don't know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I like I like thinking that we, we can experiment with the podcast a little bit. But I'll just say this from one podcast host to another, like speaking directly to your audience, the more feedback that we can get from our audiences, the better. So if your listeners are, are tuning in right now, like, I don't know where where do you like to get feedback? You know where 
Where we tell people go? to send us feedback at evolve at modern species.com. Um, send email. it via email, but like drop a comment, you know, sub- subscribe or, or yeah. do just in a YouTube, you know, we put these on YouTube, like comments there would be helpful just anywhere, like <laughs> anywhere you want to reach out. We'll, we'll meet you there. <laughs> That's what we say too. I'm like, any feedback is good feedback. Like just, you know, tell us what you want and we'll do it. Absolutely. Yeah, Cause I mean, we get some data as podcasters through the different platforms that host it, but like that real direct feedback is super helpful as well. Yeah, I agree yeah. with that. And you've mentioned your retail ready course a couple times now, but now tell us a little bit more about that course. Um, who is it for and, and what do they get out of it? Yeah, thanks for asking. So I've been teaching retail ready for about five years. And the way it started was I found my, my clients, my consulting clients, all had the same type of question and all had the same, you know, would get to the same point in their business and and hit a roadblock. And they all felt like they were going at it alone and just winging it in their businesses. And, and I was booked, I could not take on any more clients. And so I was like, I have to find a way to put these people in the same room give them the same knowledge and and have them connect with one another. Like there's got to be a way to scale this that doesn't involve me, you know, working a hundred hours a week. And so, so five years ago, we had our very first cohort inside of, you know, inside of Retail Ready. And this, gosh, I, I feel like five years ago, like digital courses were not, you know, as prolific as they are now. And so there was a lot of convincing, you know, (laughs) about what it was and like, you know, no, it's online. Like we literally did, we would do conference calls five years ago instead of Zoom. Like it was wild. So Retail Ready has evolved, but as as it is right now in 2021, we actually call it a program rather than a course because it consists of our course, which is curriculum based, our coaching that we do daily inside of our student group, and then twice a month on our live group coaching calls. And then that community aspect, which is so, so important. So we've had about a thousand brands go through Retail Ready. Our community still has about like 800 and something very active food founders and their food, beverage, taxable grocery founders, and they're supporting one another. And it's really aimed at producers who are in the first few years of business who are looking to increase their wholesale success. So if you want to sell on a shelf, whether that's a digital shelf, you know, through like the Thrive Markets of the world or a physical brick and mortar shelf, Retail Ready is is for you. We we talk we come at it from that buyer perspective. I provide that those the brains of the buyer, that's what we call it internally. And then of course, Charlie's got that that producer perspective, that founder mindset that's so so important as well. Nice. So when people go through the course, they stay, they get like access to yeah. this community from there forward to just kind of stay yeah, engaged. Yeah, we do and lifetime access learning. to everything. Yeah, I've. Nice. I felt like it was really important because everyone. So when I and so this changed. I'll tell. I'll. I'll talk about the behind the scenes. But when I first launched Retail Ready, it was cohort based and everyone started and stopped at the same time. And we would do it as a five week live course. And it was, gosh, I'll tell you, it was so satisfying to see students have such quick wins because they had to, right? Like there was a limited time. They had to like put their head down and work. However, after running it live for about two years, I would run it multiple times a year live two things happened. First off, producers would come to me and they'd be like, Allie, I'm ready to take retail ready. I'm so stoked. Like, get me in there. And I would say like, 
oh, sorry, like we're in week three of our cohort. Like you, you can't join right now. Like put your name on the wait list. Like we'll run it again in a couple months. And from that perspective, one, what a huge disservice to a brand who needed my help, right? Like I was, they were coming to me like ready for help. And I was saying, no, sorry, I can't help you. And you know, from a business perspective, brands were coming like with their wallet open, ready to pay me. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. no, 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 I can't take your money, right? Like on both sides, it wasn't the right business model. And I would find that brands, because of the nature of our industry, brands would come in, they would be all excited about it. And then sure enough, like in each cohort, there was, you know, a brand or two who would have something come up in their business that would pull them away, right? Like maybe somebody quits on your production team. Maybe Expo West is happening and like you and your co-founder have to fly to LA, right? Like something inevitably would come up and pull a brand or two away from the content. And once they got behind, it was really, really hard to catch up just because we went like at such a fast pace. So about three years ago, all that being said, like we switched the model and we made the curriculum of Retail Ready self-paced. And that's really why I wanted it to be lifetime access where people can come in, they can choose to, so it's 12 modules. So I always recommend doing a module a week and in 90 days, like you are going to be so much further ahead than, you know, you thought you would be. But some, I mean, some brands like Netflix style, like totally binge it and they're done, you know, in, in three weeks, in two weeks. I mean, sometimes I question if, they're really implementing all of yeah, the of course, things. Yeah. But I love giving giving students all of the curriculum up front. And then students can actually like pick and choose what they need in that moment rather than being on that like dripped out course schedule. And then they also have access to people who are also doing it at the same time yes. or have already done it. So how yes. does that part of the interaction? Because that's that's the argument for the cohort model, right? Is yeah. that people yeah. are going through it at the same time. They have the same questions. They have the same yes. experience and can give each other feedback. But with the model that you shifted to, they still somehow get that, right? Totally. And that was, gosh, that was like such... This was my hesitation of, of switching the model a couple of years ago. I was like, we, that cohort experience is so valuable. So one of the things that that I did was hired a, an employee who would focus on student success, right? So, and this was before Charlie, it was just like a part-time admin assistant who really was essentially creating cohorts in inside of our student community regardless and then with time like as we enrolled more and more students we realized that it was a larger role so now we have two people doing this um our student success coordinator and then also charlie the vp of student success and then of course i'm in that that group as well so it really takes three of us nurturing the students and making sure that gosh when you come into the program you feel you know, immediately welcome, you know, exactly who else is a newbie, like who else is in your category, who you can collaborate with. It's it's really special. That's really cool. It's a nice yeah. hybrid model because I've taken a lot of online courses, especially recently, like Seth Godin's marketing yep. seminar, for yeah. example, was one. And I did this. This was more of like a hybrid of online and in person, but 10,000 small businesses, which is like funded by Goldman Sachs, I believe. Oh, but cool. They make it free to small business entrepreneurs who meet certain criteria. So any of your listeners interested in that cool. or if you're interested in it, it's, yeah. it's a good program. They've just kind of designed it to help you create a growth plan essentially. And then you have a cohort. If you have a local program near you, you can do it 
live in, or in person. But if uh, in my case, we didn't have a local program near me, so I was in the national cohort. But anyway, so I've taken some of these different courses and, and I'm just now kind of launching our own course that's on scaling your impact as a oh, brand. Cool. So, you know, oh, mo- most brands these days have like a little seed of impact. At least some of them have a lot more than that. And we're the goal of this is to help people connect with each other to share their thoughts on the journey, but also give them a structure to go through to figure out how to identify untapped opportunities and then kind of learn some frameworks for like going through and practically deciding which things to scale and then scaling them and and making an action plan for it. So we're just in that like first cohort right now and it's really exciting, but it's fun to hear you have you've kind of evolved your program over time and I'm sure as we run it multiple times, we'll figure out the right formula. That's what I was going to say. And first off, I'll say congratulations because launching a program is no joke. Yeah, it's a <laughs> it lot of work. <laughs> so much work. So big shout out to you. Congratulations. That's that's awesome. And two, I don't think that we would have had success with this self-paced model if I hadn't run Retail Ready as a cohort for years beforehand. Because I really like that experience of being, you know, on the ground with a cohort and answering their questions. I mean, we still answer questions in real time, but like everyone having the same questions at the same time really, really meant that when we went to update our course content, we could take all of those questions and build them into the material. You know, we were really able to, to, we had to or I felt like we had to restructure the course and really make some changes that made it work as that self-paced model if we were going to go in that direction. So it'll be interesting to see what you end up with as well. But yeah, I loved the live model is smart to start. Yeah, I got the impression that that's how Seth Godin's marketing seminar evolved too. It seemed like you could tell from the videos that it started as more of like a live yeah. kind of small cohort. And then by the time you're taking it, there's like a bunch of questions already answered and extra videos that answer those things or go deeper into subjects. So, so it was an interesting model. And I just remembered another one I did recently. I'm not sure what platform your community's on, but ours is on Mighty Networks. Oh, you are? Oh, cool. Yeah. And the founder of Mighty Networks runs this course on community design masterclass, essentially. And she's also live running it multiple times. And I, I think they just launched an evolution of it, but they're kind of in that same stage of Get in there, teach the content over and over again, find all the problems and glitches (laughs) and stuff in there, and then you can kind of eventually automate it. Yes, I feel like this is just great business advice, right? Like for our listeners, it's the same exact thing, whether we're talking about an online course or a physical product. It's that idea that it evolves over time. And when you get that feedback from your consumer, your purchaser, your student, whatever it is, that that, uh, dictates what what you do in the future with your business. That's awesome. So speaking of uh, helping our customers, you know, brands, let's just say, evolve. So you've worked with over a thousand companies on getting retail ready now. What are some of the most common misconceptions you've found through that time? Yeah, I have a couple to share with you. I mean, the first one, and we briefly touched on it, but it's it's really this idea that if it's delicious, a wholesale buyer is going to say yes. And I think this, you know, this really stems from the fact that as brand founders, you are so trained to sell to the consumer, right? Like you are so trained to talk about the wonderful benefits of your product, like how delicious it is, that fantastic 
brand story that that consumer can relate to. You know, you really develop that target audience as, you know, business building, brand building 101, you're developing that target audience. So you have so much practice pitching your product to the consumer. And that's great, right? Like that, we both agree that is very, very important. However, when you go to pitch to wholesale, they're not your end consumer. They don't care about how delicious your product is. They don't care about, you know, the fact that you tweaked your recipe over years in the kitchen with your grandma, (laughs) right? Like, I don't care about that. What I care is whether or not it's going to help me meet my category goals. Because I think about it, you know, I think about this, this idea of a grocery buyer going into their annual review, right, with their supervisor, and they sit down, and that supervisor says, like, Allie, sales were flat this year. And if I said like, yeah, sales were flat, but like I brought in these pierogi that were just so delicious and were (laughs) handmade from the grandma's recipe, they'd be like, I don't care. (laughs) Like you did not hit your But they did like 50 different recipes to find the right one. (laughs) Exactly. I'm like, but they, they, you know, labored in the kitchen and they pinch all the pierogi by hand, you know, like my supervisor would not care, right? They want me to, they want that story to translate to sales on the shelf. And so I think that that is truly like the biggest shift that producers need to make. Stop talking to the wholesale buyer like they are your end consumer. Can I give one other mistake that I see too? Absolutely. And this is really as a result of the pandemic. So March, 2020 hits, things go upside down in our grocery industry, in many industries, and e-commerce just skyrockets, right? Last year, e-commerce just, whew, like, you know, rose to the top. And so as a result, gosh, we had so many brands, so many retail-ready students, so many brands reaching out to us. And, you know, the focus was really on e-commerce, and like, Allie, like, I've got to get my e-commerce strategy up. I need to figure out my <laughs> my digital marketing. I've got to figure out my, like, get my Instagram going. Like, I'm now thinking of being on TikTok. Like, I got to get what my Shopify dialed in. Like, everything, like, direct to consumer all the time. And, you know, so we really heard this refrain that, like, e-commerce was the best and cheapest path forward. And what we saw shake out was that e-commerce, yes, increased. Absolutely. Like, gosh, my mom is like ordering groceries online nowadays. But it increased on the wholesale side of things and not as steadily on the direct-to-consumer side of things. Yes, of course, some brands had lots of success direct-to-consumer. But they're typically the brands that were really, really solutions oriented like supplements and you know things that people were like googling right like anxiety relief (laughs) things like (laughs) that immunity exactly immunity oh my god my elderberry clients like great 2020 (laughs) (laughs) and so like the direct to consumer yes it 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 skyrocketed in some categories but then we like we saw a dip back again like May, June, 2020, like things kind of became back to normal in direct to consumer, right? Because think about it, like when was the last time you went to a granola producer's website and ordered granola and then clicked through to a coffee producer's website and ordered your beans and then like got your ice cream direct to consumer, like shoppers don't shop like that. And so the the e-commerce that we really, really saw 
grow and then sustain its growth last year into and in 2021 as well is the wholesale side of e-commerce. So like I, I used the example of Thrive Market earlier in this podcast, such a great example here that shoppers or even Instacart, right? Like ordering online, still doing delivery or curbside pickup. Those platforms that allowed the shopper to build an entire basket of groceries and check out in one click, right? Those were the ones that were really, really sustainable. And the the takeaway here is realizing that that's still wholesale. There is still a decision maker sitting behind a desk, or maybe at this point still at home, <laughs> you know, on their couch, making decisions about category assortment at Thrive Market, right? And so it still requires that wholesale strategy and that sales pitch that convinces a real person to list your product on their wholesale website. So I think that was really eye-opening for people last year when they they felt like they had to go all in direct to consumer and realize like, oh, actually, I can take advantage of this e-commerce trend just by double downing on my wholesale strategy. Yeah, that's cool. That's a good yeah. insight. Do you find that the online retailers have kind of similar criteria and um, kind of buying and decision-making processes as physical retailers? Yeah. And in some instances, almost more stricter requirements because their shoppers are able to really narrow down and be so selective, right? Like, you know, just to keep on this Thrive Market, like they, they have such specific requirements from their brands because their shoppers are going there for, you know, things that have been vetted by their buyers. So vetted for, you know, sustainability or non-GMOs or like everything has to be, you know, certain meet certain requirements. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's like the extreme version of Whole Foods or something. (laughs) Exactly. But with that said, I imagine that the one difference might be that they don't have as much like shelf space concern, right? Because yeah. if you're in an online retailer and they have two nut butters already, like they're not wor- wondering where they'd fit a third. So they could take on a third, but maybe there's also some decision making there in terms of not overwhelming exactly. <laughs> their audience with 300 nut butters and confusing them. So exactly. It's, it's that it's that fine balance, right? Of of figuring out decision fatigue is real. I feel like people are, you know, certainly feeling it as a result of COVID too. Like, you know, we made <laughs> we had to make so many decisions over the past 18 months. And so I actually think there is is something very powerful about having a limited product assortment and making sure that it's the right products, right? But keeping it limited for your consumers. And I'll say this, that with a lot of these e-commerce suppliers or platforms, they're still managing the physical inventory. So even though they have unlimited digital shelf space, they still have the physical inventory in their warehouse. And so managing yeah, managing product and particularly managing perishable product is it's a lot. It's a, a lot of moving yeah. parts there. So so as the producer we have to think about it from the other side of the table too that that managing that physical inventory can be challenging. That makes sense. Yeah. The warehouse space is and like you said shelf life and all that's still a major yeah. concern. Yeah. Cool. Okay, that's helpful. So as we start to wrap up, I'm just curious you've been doing so much in the space from, you know, consulting to launching podcasts to courses and evolving those courses. So what's next for you and retail 
or not retail ready, a food biz whiz and all the things you do. Yeah, thank you for asking. So we've got a couple exciting things happening right now. We are currently hiring. Our team is growing. So I feel like, gosh, every nice, couple months exciting. we're like adding to our team. Yeah, we're, we're a great place to work. So food biz whiz is hiring. The other things that we're focusing on, and depending on what when this podcast is released, when this episode is released, we are going, we have been going through an enormous rebrand and new website development. We've been working on it since Ooh, exciting. May. Gosh, I mean, I I'm at the point where I'm looking at our our, you know, the Squarespace website that I made myself seven years ago. And I'm like, oh gosh, like. It, is, it <laughs> has been time. So that, that's been, I mean, you know, like that's, that's been huge. It's taken so much capacity, so much behind the scenes effort. So really, really exciting, excited to get that launched in Q4. And then internally, we are trying to stay focused on supporting our retail ready students in Q4, because that is really the time that we see producers work on the behind the scenes of their business, knowing that Q4 you know, October, November, December is the time that wholesale buyers are heads down in turkeys and candy cane, and they are really dealing with (laughs) internal operations at their store. So it means it's a great time for producers to dial in their sales pipeline, their promotional plan, their sell sheets and pricing and all that stuff that we do inside of Retail Ready. So that come January, you can pitch to buyers like the best pitch that you can possibly imagine. So a lot, a lot, a lot of student support inside of Retail Ready for Q4. And then the last thing I'll bring up, I wasn't planning on saying this, but since you mentioned that you've got these leadership experts, I am working one-on-one with a really, really select group of of clients to do one-on-one leadership coaching. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've done a certification with Coactive Training Institute in leadership coaching. I've done about gosh, like 125 hours of training so far. I am like rounding the corner of like another 100 hours of certification, but it means that um, we're adding leadership leadership coaching to the Food Biz Whiz package as well. That's very cool. Yeah. Thank you. I'm excited to kind of continue seeing how it all rolls out and all your offerings that you expand upon. But as somebody who's background is in branding, I'm also excited to see um, your new brand and website because, you know, that's Modern Species, which is my agency that I run. That's kind of like what we do all the time. So, A, I know how much work that is and also how exciting it is. And then you mentioned, you know, your seven-year-old site, like our agency website is over seven years old and we're trying to get a new one built. So, I also know how pretty much as soon as you launch one, you feel like it's out of date, but you just got (laughs) to... And it, well, keep it running that, for a long time because it's just so much energy to work totally. on. Totally. And it's that, that you know, phrase like the cobbler's children have no shoes, right? I'm like, exactly, I can yeah. dole out the business advice all day long. And yet that takes, you know, that that's a full-time job. So working in the business, you know, is is always like, of course, the thing that happens first, but stepping away and, and taking that time to work on the business. Yeah. It's so important. So I'm excited for you to see see the new site. And that's the beautiful part of like growing your team too, is that you get to spend more time working on the business, right? Because I think, and that's part of what that 10,000 small businesses program Mm -hmm. does is their entire focus is trying to get entrepreneurs to spend less time working in the business and more time working on the business. So for anyone out there interested in a program like that, check out, I think it's 10ksb.com or something like that. Oh, I'm going to look into that. That's a great recommendation. Awesome. Well, appreciate your time and I love all that you're doing to help um, all these producers kind of build better businesses and have better relationships with retailers. 
which is super important, of course, and you know all that you're doing for the industry. And I'm excited to keep following your progress. So thanks for doing what you do. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review, and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback. So send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. Business can be a powerful force for good. Is your brand living up to its full potential? Go to evolvecpg.com to learn about our new impact workshop, Exponential Good. Over six weeks, we'll be thinking bigger, getting relevant, spreading throughout, going exponential, working backwards, and making it real so you can walk away with a clear vision and a detailed action plan for scaling your brand's positive impact exponentially. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Allie or her company, go to AllieBall.com. <laughs>